If you don't know me or if you're new, uh, my name is Jason, and, uh, and I'm the youth pastor. I'm an associate pastor here. And so uh, if you are visiting, um, man, I am glad that you are here. But I also think that you should come back and visit again next week because Tim, our lead pastor, will be back. And we'd love to have you get a sense of what our church is like on a regular basis, too. Um, but to get started today, I want to I remind you guys, if you were here last week, we're just doing a quick two-week like mini-series look at Paul, the Apostle Paul, and the Corinthian church. And we're, and we're calling this series Church Crush. So basically, we're talking about church in church. And so um, to get us started today, though, um, I, I, I want to tell you just a little bit about me. Um, I think that that's always fun to get us started. And so um, I, some of you guys are going to be a lot like me in this, and some of you guys are going to be exactly the opposite. Um, when you were in school, how many of you guys hated taking tests? Like, you know, like some of us were just like, we, like the test part was the problem, right? Like you'd do okay during the semester. Maybe you'd be pretty good at figuring out the homework and you could hear the assignments, but it was the moment that you actually had to sit down with a clock and take a test that everything falls apart, right? And so you had good grades and you get to the final and it just tanks off, right? Or you hated the people like me that were good at tests, Right? Some of us in here are, are good test takers, right? And so um, what the frustrating part for my classmates was they would go through that process of being uh, really good at their homework and really bad at tests, and I literally never did homework, but I was good at tests. There was something in me that was wired to take a test. Like I could memorize a vast amount of detailed information for that moment for the moment of taking a test, right? And, and now the reality is that it's gone pretty quickly afterwards. And so my grades said that I got A's in all kinds of classes. And my, like I have a kid now who is uh, in pre-calculus, which I did great in math. And I'm like, it's like Greek to me. I have no idea. But I passed the test, right? Now, I'm sure that uh, along the way in, in my school career, um, in fact, I know in high school, I took AP biology. And then in college, I took biology again. And so I am positive that at some point, I took some tests on human organs, right? And so I know that at some point, um, somebody asked me questions, and, and I did good because I got an A in both of those classes. So I was able to answer questions like, well, what is the stomach lining made out of, or some dumb thing that I don't know now, right? Or... Um, like, like the liver, what does the liver do? And then, and then the liver has like organ friends packed around it, you know, like the, the pancreas and the gallbladder, and they like, they like help. And I'm sure that I learned all of that information and was able to pass the test. And then five years ago, I had my first gallbladder attack. And interestingly, that exact same information that I had known in high school became incredibly important to me again. Right? And, and so suddenly that same information about, like, what does the gallbladder actually do? I got an A on the test, but it mattered a whole lot more whenever I was in pain. Have, have any of you guys ever had a gallbladder attack? Okay. Um, I, when I had my gallbladder attack, I was, I was in my living room, first, the first one, I've had several, the first one. Um, I, I was in front of my children, and I was literally on the ground crying in a ball. I thought I was going to die. Like I was in my mid-30s. I'm, I'm having a heart attack, you guys. I'll see you on the other side. And my wife's in the back like, I've had children. Shut up. <laughs> right? Like, I don't know what's going on, but it's probably just the man flu. Like, get over it. 
But for me, it was such a big deal. Like, there was such intense pain. And so then I got on the internet, and I was desperately interested in what's going on with a gallbladder, right? And so um, that same information now impacts the way that I live. See, before I knew it, I, I learned it, it, I was able to pass the test, but now it matters because it's, it's true for me that whenever I eat a Freddy's double cheeseburger and fries, oh, I heard somebody in the back, yeah, that's what we should not be eating if we have gallbladder problems. And so I know that whenever I eat that, my gallbladder is like, oh, I really want to help you digest this, right? You ate all this fatty food, and it wants to like squeeze out the bile necessary to do the work, but the problem is I've got something blocking the little tube, and it hurts, right? So here's my point. Knowing something is true is not the same as knowing that it's true for me. Let me give you another example. Um, uh, whenever uh, I've got a 16-year-old um, who's, who's starting to drive, and we're, we're driving around, I'm trying to teach him to drive defensively, right? I'm like, you should be constantly worried about things you don't think you should be worried about because you might get in an accident. Now, I remember being 16 and having people tell me, drive defensively, you don't want to get in an accident. And the moment that they're not there, I'm like, okay, we're in the clear. As fast and dumb as I could be in the car, right? Until I got in an accident. And the moment I had gotten in an accident, the week or two or month after that, like every little thing that like moved on the sidewalk was a threat, right? And at that moment, I understood what it meant to drive defensively. Okay, so knowing something is true is not the same as knowing that it's true for me. And I think that that phenomenon shows up in church. See, I think that there's a difference between agreeing that something is true and believing that that same thing is true for me. Now, I want to show you guys one of the most um, sobering passages in Scripture to prove that that shows up in church. And so in, in Matthew 7, Jesus says something that scares me, and I want to read it to you guys. Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You want to know what scares me about that? That it's possible to be convinced on my end that I'm in, that I'm good, that I am heaven bound, and have Jesus not agree. That scares me. It scares me. And so I think that there are a lot of people, listen, church people. I think that there are a lot of church people that learned the answers to pass a test at some point in their faith. Um, maybe they had a, a specific prayer that they said at church camp. Like, I don't know how many times I got saved at one church camp. <laughs> or maybe their grandma really wanted them to get baptized, so they got baptized when they were seven or eight years old. Or they grew up in church. And they had all of the right answers pounded into them from whenever they were little, 
right? And so they never, they never grew up without the right answers to the test. And now they're part of this church thing. Now, now they're part of this God thing because that's what, that's what people do that have, that have said the prayer. That's what we do whenever we call ourselves Christians, right? And so we, we go to church and we give and we, we serve and we're, we're part of this thing, this church thing. And what terrifies me, like as a, as a Christian and as a pastor, is that just like these people in Jesus' warning, I think it is possible to be part of something that makes you feel like you're in. Maybe you knew the answers to pass a test and have Jesus say, I never knew you because it was, it was true, but it was never true for you. And here's the problem. You can't tell by looking at people, can you? You can't look around and determine whether or not somebody's faith is genuine or, or real. Like, I've, I've got a friend, um, and, and I'm not going to use his real name because one day I hope that I get a chance to talk to him again. Um, but this friend of mine was, like, so important in my faith. Like, I think I had been a, a Christian longer than he had, but whenever we were college age, we were hanging out, and his friendship like transformed the way that I thought about Jesus. Like he was so on fire. We went to every church thing that we could go to. We were studying the Bible like two or three times a week. We'd get together and talk about what we were learning. We were burning all of our ACDC CDs out in the woods, you know, like <laughs> serious Jesus stuff, right? And I was like, I want a faith like you've got. And then he went off to Bible college, and then he, and then he went um, to seminary, and I'm pretty sure that he got his doctorate degree from a Christian university. And 10 years later, I don't think he believes. But I wouldn't have known that looking at him then, right? Like, we can't judge somebody else's faith. It's a personal thing. It's also a church thing which is why we're going to talk about it as we talk about church. So in this, this short series that we're in, um, I told you that we're going to talk about Paul um, and the Corinthian church. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Paul and the Corinthian church to deal with this issue. See, Paul was a, was a missionary. He felt like his calling was to go around and to tell people about Jesus. And so he went all around the Mediterranean, city to city, people he didn't know. And every time he gets into a place, he's like telling them all about Jesus. And then he moves on to another city. And on his second missionary journey, he had like five or six stops along the way. And, and like some of them were like Thessalonica, right, with the Thessalonian letters that we read of, Berea, Right, you've heard of the Berean church, right? He stopped in Athens. How cool is that, that he got to go to Athens, Greece? And then he, he ends up in Corinth. And here's the thing. They think that at most of these stops, Paul stayed a matter of weeks. Like, they think he stayed three weeks at Thessalonica. So he comes into town. He meets a few people. He talks to them about Jesus. He, he tells them about Jesus. And then he's like, okay, you guys, you're on the same page. Okay, hang out together. I got to go. And he moves on. That was his lifestyle of, of telling people about Jesus. And also, when he got to the Corinthian church, see, he, he started by going to the Jews. He started by going to God's people. He went to the synagogue to argue about Jesus. And it says that they, they were so frustrating to him that they, were, they so did not want to hear what he had to say that they became abusive 
to him. And so Paul's used to going a couple weeks here, move on a couple weeks here, and now he's in a city where not only are they not receiving him, they're abusive. You would think Paul would want to move on, right? And then in Acts 18, God talks to him. And I'm going to read it to you. Verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have people, many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. Teaching them the word of God. So he's on this, this trip where he just made, it's almost like a cruise, right? Like he's just stopping in these, and then he's just, he puts down roots for a year and a half in the city of Corinth. Why do you think that God told him that? Why do you think that God would stop him and say, slow down, Cal- calm down a little bit, put down some roots here? See, I think that God wanted Paul to be in Corinth for a while. And what ended up happening is that instead of being a church planter, he became their first pastor. It said that for a year and a half, he was teaching them things from the word of God, right? And so Paul, the church planter, becomes Paul, the pastor. And I imagine that, um, you know, it's made up of a lot of Gentiles and Jews, and so he's got to catch the, Jew, the Gentiles up on some things. And so I imagine Paul is teaching some Old Testament stuff. He's teaching them the law and the prophets, Right? And he's probably teaching them about, like, Jesus' parables. Um, and, and, and I've even wondered, like, if Paul was the pastor, I wonder if Paul liked um, sermon illustrations as much as I like sermon illustrations. Or, like, I've done some weird stuff up here, like paintbrushes and machetes, and I've built weird things. And I wonder if, was that Paul? Like, was, I don't know. Was he talking about the Sermon on the Mount when he was talking to them? So for a year and a half, he's their pastor. And then he leaves. And, and what he finds out after he's left, maybe a, a short time, a year or two after he's left, is that they've kind of gotten off track. And so he writes them this letter, 1 Corinthians. This isn't a church planter's letter. This is a pastor's letter to his church, his heart for them. And he says something really profound early in the letter in 1 Corinthians 2. And so I'm gonna, that's where we're really going to get started here. That 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, this is Paul. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. So Paul, he spent a year and a half with them, and what he's saying here is, do you remember when I was with you? Like the whole time, I could not help but make it be about Jesus Christ. Like I, I couldn't do it. Like all, I resolved to make it all about him all the time. And he says, I made it about Jesus and him crucified. And I think that he was so concerned that his church would really understand who Jesus is, right? Who Jesus was and is, right? The character and the nature of Jesus. And so I imagine Paul, like, spending so much time, like, do you guys understand that this is God himself? 
that the God of the universe walked here, hung out with people, that he was perfect and he was bold and he was confusing and frustrating sometimes. I believe that, that he was here to start a kingdom, but we don't understand it and it feels like it's upside down. He's constantly talking about Jesus, the perfect one. And he's constantly talking about him crucified. Like, I don't think Paul could get very far without talking about the cross. That the, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the perfect one, the one who couldn't do anything wrong, died because we did something wrong. And he talked about the crucifixion. He talked about a, filling in a gap that we could never fill in. And I'm sure that in a year and a half, he probably talked about other things, right? Like imagine going to church week after week. You know, they probably had Wednesday night service and Thursday. They were like super holy, right? And so they, I'm sure that they were constantly doing church stuff. And, and I'm sure that he talked about other things for a year and a half. And I imagine some of them going, yeah, but like you talked about family stuff and like how we should treat our, our husband. And, 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 and I remember that time that you talked about money and like how God wants us to handle that. And he goes, yeah, but here's the thing. I can't get very far. I can't talk for very long without making sure that you understand how these things that are in your life actually revolve around or are solved by Jesus and him crucified. Like, I, I just can't go into anything without it coming up. We would say that that is the gospel Jesus and him crucified, right? And so I would say that Paul had a gospel-saturated ministry. And he says, I didn't try to persuade you or convince you that it was God's power that made the difference. Did you catch that? Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't show up with persuasive words or wise sayings. Like, my goal here was not to impress you with the way that I talk. My goal wasn't to convince you with some grand argument. Now, when we look at that, that makes me nervous about what church has become today. When I look at that, and he says this, you remember church? You remember how I was? You remember what I was about? And then we look at what church is now. That makes me nervous because, quite frankly, this idea that he didn't come with wise and persuasive words, that his main goal wasn't to try to impress or convince you. And then I look at the modern church culture, and it looks a whole lot like, impress me. Convince me. Right? Convince me why I need to change. If I'm inspired, I just might adjust my life enough, right? Like if, I, if, I, if you do a good job and, and make me feel the things that I need to be inspired to change for my own good. Sometimes that's how church feels. And, and whether we mean to or not, that sounds more like moral therapeutic deism than it does the gospel. Moral therapeutic deism. Those are big words, and so I'm going to work on them for you, but we're going to do them in reverse, okay? Deism. Well, I'm not an atheist. I believe in God. If you believe in God, you're a deist. 
Okay? And so imagine this, that you're out there in our culture and you believe in God and you're like, well, where should I go where people believe in God? Church sounds like the place where we do that. I I'm not an atheist. You and 90% of American adults believe in God. Therapeutic, moral therapeutic deism. We want to feel better. Right? Like we want to feel better about ourselves and who we are. And we, sometimes we see ourselves and we're like, I'm not okay. I'm broken. I'm screwed up. We want to feel better about ourselves or we want to feel better about our life and our circumstances. And we get to church and we're like, oh my gosh, your life sucks. I'm doing great. Right? Like, or we want to feel better about our emotions. I struggle with these things and. Or, or maybe it's your options in life and your future. And you want to feel like, okay, there's, there's some hope. Or your purpose. But we want to feel better. Therapeutic. And then moral. Be good. Right? Like, like there are some things that you should do. And there are some things that you shouldn't do. And the reality is that we, as we judge ourselves on our morality, we're actually really not very focused on our behavior anyways, are we? We're usually just focused on our motives, right? And so what ends up happening is we, we get this formula where it's like, if I'm good here, fill in the blank, then I will feel better here, fill in the blank, and God's in the mix. Have we allowed church, and I mean we like, we, church culture, the big C church, the American church, have we allowed church to become a place where we help you become a better you with God in the mix? Is that what church is for? For you to come here so that you can work on you? Is that why we're here, right? And see, the reality is, I think I've treated church like that a lot. Like, on both sides of this microphone, I think I've done that. Like, I've left church services, like, super inspired. Like, I can remember some of my favorite messages from 15 or 20 years ago, and I left like, I'm going to change something in my life. And then I've left other church services where I'm like, I didn't get anything out of that. Like, I heard that stuff before, or that was boring, or guess I don't need to do anything right now. I wasn't inspired. And then also I look back at some of my sermons that I've delivered. And quite frankly, whether I meant to or not, I think sometimes I've, I've given this message that like, as long as I, I do this thing right, then I'm going to feel better over here. And, and of course, God, God's involved. Moral therapeutic deism. And here's the caveat. God wants your morality. He wants you to be good. God wants your life to be good for the most part, right? Like he wants his people to live a fulfilling life full of purpose and vision and hope. He wants you to feel good for the most part in life. And, if, and he's a deist. You realize that God's up there and he's like, yep, I'm here. So technically, God's okay with moral therapeutic deism. The problem is that when it sits in the place of genuine, gospel-saturated faith, and it masquerades as Christianity. And Paul says, I'm not okay with that. Paul wasn't willing 
to let that happen at church. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, later in the book, he says this thing in verse 16. He says, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Like, woe to me. Like, God, strike me down if I'm not preaching the gospel. Think about that for a minute. Like, Paul was so compelled to preach the gospel that he, was, he couldn't do anything else. He had a singular purpose. He was bullheaded about it. We might even say that he was obsessed with the gospel. Like nine times just in this one letter, the word gospel comes up. And you know what? Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed. I, I, um, let me back up. We all want to be normal, right? Most of us want to be normal. Okay. Um, and then you look at Bible characters, and they are not have you ever noticed that some of these guys are like really weird, right? Like David was tormented by his love for God. And like one minute he's like, God, where are you? I don't know where you're at. I can't find you. And then like one page later in Psalms, he's like, you go, you're everywhere that I go. I, I, try, I go down in the pit. You're down there. I'm over here. Like he's like neurotic, right? tormented. Isaiah was weird, right? He had to do some weird. Him and Jeremiah were asked to do some really weird things for God. And if you'd have looked at them, they would not have looked normal. And Paul, I think Paul is tormented by the idea that people would live without really understanding what Jesus did for them and applying it to their life. Why? Why does it bother him that much that he's literally like calling curses on himself from God if he doesn't get it out of his mouth? Why? Because if we get this part wrong, nothing else matters. None of the rest of church life will ever actually matter if we don't get this part right. And so what scares me is that if Jesus said it's possible to think that you're in, it's possible to think that you are saved, that you're going to get in front of me and you're going to, it's going to be a homecoming, and I'm going to look at you and say I don't know you. If that's possible, and it's the church's job to sort this stuff out, right? Like I mean, us, the church, the people that have carried the good news to the world, it's our job to sort that stuff out. And so if it's, if it's possible that we're going to get there and we think we're in and we're not, and it's the church's job to sort this stuff out, what scares me is it's also possible for churches to be treating people like they're saved because they pass the test with the right answers, because they look the part, because they've been going to church for 10 years, 20 years, because they hang out with the right people, because they've got the right answers to things. And we assume that people have really grasped the gospel, and then we deliver to them moral therapeutic deism week after week after week, and we allow people to live this close to the actual gospel truth and never actually be there, convinced that they're good. That's a church problem. Because just like my gallbladder, there is a difference between agreeing that something is true, answering test questions, and believing that it is true for me.
So you don't just need the right answers to a gospel test. You need to apply the gospel truth to you personally. And so what if, what if the church allowed you to get through this life as what I would call a cultural Christian, only to have that moment with Jesus? Where you run up and you're like, Jesus! And he goes, who? Who are you? What if the church allowed you to come every week, be part of this thing, only to let you get there? And so I used the term cultural Christians a minute ago. I'm, I'm going to give you guys a couple, um, a couple things to think on. And these are not rules. These aren't, uh, this isn't a pass or fail thing. These are just things that make me nervous when I hear things like this because it makes me wonder if people really get it. Some people think that Jesus is mostly a, a social reformer instead of a God who sacrificed himself for sins. That like, I sure like the Sermon on the Mount stuff and I like it when he talks about love and like there's a lot of really good applicable things that Jesus said for my life. We've got hospitals now because of Jesus, right? Women are like a part of culture now. Thank you, Jesus. Social reformer. Or um, when people are claiming God's promises while ignoring God's requirements. That one makes me nervous because we all like the part we get out of it, right? Or when people minimize Jesus as the only way to God. I don't know how many churchgoers, how many Christians I've been around and when a friend or a loved one of theirs dies, suddenly they are saved because they're dead. Right? Or um, they, they talk about how there's, there's, there's lots of ways to sort of get there and they're talking to me about being good and like, I've, I've lived a good life. For the last couple of years, I think I've really turned around. And they minimize Jesus as the only way to God. Or, sometimes a, a cultural Christian gets just enough religious activity to gain a sense of well-being without a true devotion to Jesus Christ. Well, I go to church a lot, right? I, and they, they start to think of church as their relationship with God. Where people see protection and blessing as a goal to be obtained instead of a byproduct of a loving relationship with God. See, any one of the, I'm, I'm not throwing any one of you guys under the bus, right? The, the idea here is that these things make me nervous. And Paul wasn't willing to let it happen that people would just be cultural Christians in his, in his circle. So he reminds his church, think about this for a minute, he's writing this letter to his church. He was the pastor, and he writes this letter to them. And, he, and it, he knows he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. And yet he reminds them of the gospel before he wraps up the letter. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, it goes like this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. And so he says, can we get real clear here for a minute? Like, 
this is, I'm about to tell you the thing you need to actually be saved. But he also says, unless you twist it, unless you, you manipulate it a little bit, unless you don't quite believe it, and unless it doesn't sink all the way in, because at that point, it's possible that you would have believed in vain. That scares me too, right? That it's possible to believe in vain. And so he goes on, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and after that he appeared to more. And he goes on and he, and he lists more evidence of Jesus after his resurrection. And some of us are sitting here and we're going, oh, that's it? I knew that. I've, I've heard that part before. This is simple. It's not complex. In fact, it's, sometimes it's so simple that it's dangerous. Because it's not just uh, a need to understand to answer the question. It's not just the words that matter. It's what those words mean that matters. And so when, when Jesus, or, or when, when Paul says that he died for our sins, I mean, it's, so, it's such a quick line, and it's so easy for us to just read that and be like, yep, sounds good. No. This has to be personal. Jesus died for my sin. Like, like my sin. The, the things that I've done wrong are the things that put Jesus on the cross, right? Like every time that I've hurt somebody, every time that I've not followed through on a promise, every time that I shook my fist at God in my own mind and I was mad at him, every sin, everything that was broken and screwed up about me personally, that's what he died for, right? Because I deserve to be punished for that. Like, I deserve for God to look at my life and say, that's not okay, and be angry at me, right? Like, I think sometimes we look at these things and we think that he's just like a coach, and we're on the sideline, and he goes, well, that play didn't work very well. Get back out there. No. God looks at the wretchedness in my heart. He looks at the mess that I make in my life. And he goes, you don't deserve to be around me. You deserve hell. And here's one of the hard things about church people. I think church people can believe that that is true for the world. Because we look around and we go, man, the world is full of, it's just so dark, it's just so messy but we feel like we're on the right team. And so because we're on the right team, God's not looking at us like that, right? And, and so um, it's, it's like he's the coach. And at the end of the day, this is about you and about Jesus, and it's not some trite answer about sin. The reality is that we deserve for a perfect God to look at us and send us to hell. 
Like me alone. If I was the only person who ever screwed up would be enough to put Jesus on the cross. Because here's the other half of this, that I'm a sinner and he sees me as, as wretched and a mess, right? And, and, it's, and it's gross. And at the same time, he goes, but I love you. Like you deserve to be in trouble, but I don't want you to be in trouble. I want you with me. And so somebody's got to get punished for this. And that's when Jesus steps in. And if it's just you, and if it's just your sin, Jesus goes, I'll do it. I'll take that punishment for you. I will step in. And so when it says that he died for our sins, that's my death that Jesus had. That's yours. He died for your sin. And see, here's the thing. This is an exchange, right? And so here's the problem. Church people never really get into this mindset that it was my sin. We never really deal with the fact that it was my fault, that I'm actually the problem. I'm on the good guys team, right? I grew up in church. I've been wearing the jersey. But it's an exchange. And so what happens is we exchange his punishment for our punishment. But we also exchange his life for our life. His control for our control. We get off of the throne so that he can take a seat on that throne. And because we understand what happened, because I deserved that, and you took it, when we jump down off the throne, we get down on our face and we're like, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you did that for me. I'm so thankful, Jesus, that you would, and the other half of the exchange, the like, the giving up my life for his life and my control, that part's easy. But for how many people in church culture is it just not that easy? And it makes me wonder how much they've even understood the, the sin half, the payment half. Because if you really get it, that leads you to a genuine devotion to Jesus Christ, right? Like if you really, if it sinks in that it was my sin that he is forgiving, then that leads us to be incredibly thankful and devoted to him, right? And so we started in, in Matthew 7, and, and I want to go back there. Verse 21, I'm going to read it again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, like many people are going to come running in and they're going to be like, Lord, and they're going to be happy to see me. Many people are going to be running in and they're going to be like, Jesus, I made it. Did we not prophesy in your name? Like, like I remember talking to people on your behalf, right? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Like, we made an impact in the world. Like, it, it was like the, the spiritual world responded Did we do miracles in your name? And then he will tell them plainly, I, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, even in this passage, the scary one, he says, I never knew you. It's about a relationship with Jesus. 
And here's the thing. The relationship offer that's on the table is one of devotion and allegiance to the God who died because of your personal sin. That's the relationship offer that's on the table. A relationship built on a genuine application of the gospel in my life. Not a relationship with church attendance. Not a relationship with Jesus' people. Not about being a better version of you and growing into what God wants for you. And no. A relationship that is built on your allegiance and devotion to him because of what he did for you at the cross. Somebody asked me last night some, some hard questions about Matthew 7. Like, how is it possible that people would get there and they would be like, but we did all these things in your name The name of Jesus has incredible power in the world, right? The name of Jesus Christ accomplishes all kinds of things. And the name of Jesus Christ, church culture, if you want to be real liberal with the concept, can make a big impact in your life, can do all kinds of things. Your life can get better. You can feel good about this because you've been doing church really well. But he says, I don't know you. So I'm going to wrap this up with some hard questions. And listen, nobody has ever entered the kingdom by being manipulated in. And so I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm so far from interested in manipulating you. But some of you have a lump in your throat at this point. And we're not comfortable with that sometimes. And we want to, we want to escape that feeling sometimes but I think it's worth us asking some hard questions. And so I'm going to invite Winston to come back up, um, and I'm going to ask you guys just a, a few questions. And the first one is this. How do you see church? Is, is church a place where we help you work on you and God's in the mix? Like this is where you come to get better at life? Is, is church something that you do or something that you go to? Because that's what we've always done. Like, my grandfather took his family to church, and then my parents, they took us to this Methodist church when we were growing up, and then that closed, and so we're here now. This is what we, we go to church. Are you here to make good people friends? Like, you know, like, we've all got, like, not good people friends, Right? And so some of us need, like, good people around us. And so do you think of churches like this social environment where the good people in town are? Is going to church what you think of whenever I ask you about your devotion to Jesus? I, I sometimes am, I want to talk to people about their faith, and they want to talk to me about their church. Like, church is good, and it's not Jesus. There's a difference, right? And so, I'm going to put a question on the screen. Am I allowing church to replace a genuine devotion to Jesus in my life? Am I allowing my relationship with the church, like coming to church, belonging to a church, have I substituted that for an actual, genuine devotion with Jesus Christ? 
In fact, um, I would rather that this moment was awkward and fruitful than for us to just get out of it. And so for just a moment, I'm going to leave that on the screen. We're not going to sing a song. We're not going to take the lights down. I just want you to wrestle with this question. Am I allowing church to replace an actual devotion to Jesus in my life? All right, so some of you guys can honestly read that and you can say, no, yeah, I don't think that that's me. Right? Like, I, I, I think I have an actual genuine devotion to Jesus and I think I understand the difference between him and, and church. I'll come back to you in a minute. But if you say, yeah, actually, I think at some point along the way, I started thinking that the answer was that I needed to be at church. I think at some point along the way, I, I, I thought I had all the right test answers, but I'm not, sure that, I'm not sure that I've ever actually made it about Jesus. Then I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. Am I really believing that the gospel is for me? Like for me. Not that it's true that Jesus died for sins, that he forgives sinners. Did he die for your sins? And does he want to forgive your sin? Does he want to forgive you personally? And if you say no, I, actually, I think it's always been about the test answers. I think I've always known what was right, but I've, it's never been right for me. It's never been about my sin and, and Jesus. Then listen, today could be the day. And I know that that seems weird to say that to church people. I, I know a guy, I know a, a grown man who, uh, who grew up a pastor's kid. Like, you can imagine a pastor's kid goes to more church services before they're 16 than most of us are going to go to ever, right? Like, all kinds of church experience. He has the pastor literally tucking him in bed at night. More church than he knows what to do with. But this clicked when he was an adult. He was in his 20s when this finally... This, it's not them. Jesus didn't die for... The people outside the church, he died for me because of my sin, and I need to ask him for forgiveness. It's okay to swallow your pride and make today the starting point. And listen, some of you guys say yes to that question too. Like I have let, like, like I am believing in the gospel. Like I, I think I have a right relationship with, the, with Jesus, but, I've, but I have also let church sort of become the goal. Like I'm replacing my devotion to the church for a devotion to Jesus. And, and the reality is that Paul would say, and I think if Jesus were standing here, he would say, make it about Jesus. Make your life about Jesus Christ. Like recenter your faith. And so it doesn't need to be about going to church doesn't need to be about belonging to the church. It needs to be about Jesus Christ. And what is, that might look like doing some church stuff because the church can facilitate that devotion. 
as long as it's not in the way. So maybe you need to be in your Bible a little more. Like maybe the God that died for you wrote some things down and maybe you should be figuring out what he said. Maybe you need somebody in your life who constantly talks about Jesus just to remind you. And you need to be in a discipleship relationship. Right? You need to recenter and put Jesus back on the throne. But again, if that was you and you said, look, I, I think that it never clicked before right now, here's the problem that church has done for way too long. They've given, in this moment, they give a, like a magic prayer to be, that's not the point. The point is a question about what you believe. Are you willing to acknowledge that it was my sin? And Jesus, I want you to forgive me because of it. I want you to be my Lord. Right? And so I'm going to pray over you really quick. And then what we're going to do is we're going to have an opportunity. Um, if, if it clicked for you the first time today, or if you'd like prayer, if you'd like to understand it better, we're going to have our ministry team up front here. And we would love to either hear that it happened today or to talk you through it after service, okay? I'm going to pray real quick. God, we are so, so, so thankful for the gospel truth. And we are so, so sorry for whenever we have taken our eyes off of it and we let people feel like they're in something that they're not in. Help us to be the kind of church that never gets very far from who you are and what you did. And God, I pray over all of my friends here today that your spirit would move in their heart and convince them that they're either in because they believe the gospel or they need to start today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.